take your Bibles and go to 1 Kings 18, or 19. We've been in chapter 18 for two weeks. Where we've been in the course of the ministry of Elijah is that he has now had a, a big contest on Mount Carmel. Last week was um, a high as he confronted the prophets of Baal who were unable to call down fire from heaven according to their God's name. And yet at a prayer, a simple prayer, the Lord sent fire and consumed the sacrifice to show that he is the one Lord God. It's such a high, the drought ends, and Elijah prays and rain comes. And we now come to chapter 19. Today we come to the first eight verses. Read with me. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. But he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is God's word. We're God's people in this time. Uh, it's already up there. I made confession this week that since the middle of July, I've had a, a quote either that I've confessed or admitted, or I've just embedded into the sermons from the Lord of the Rings. In February, before this year became what this year has become, I had enjoyed a movie marathon with friends over Friday and Saturday, watching the extended editions, 12 plus hours of these movies. I've now been back into the audiobooks, and some of you are shaking your heads, and you've maybe not been on this journey through Middle Earth before, um, but for me it has um, been life-giving in many ways this year. One of the highest purposes of fantasy is to help us live more wisely in reality. I'm Riken. C.S. Lewis says this, The value of myth is that it takes all the things we know and restores them to rich significance, which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. So in listening to, uh, watching movies and listening to audiobooks of the Lord of the Rings this year, um, I was driving several months ago down Hershberger Road. And this quote came on. I was at the Prancing Pony here, and I'm not going to get too far in the story for folks who don't know it, but 
Um, there's a man, who, a mysterious man, a cloaked man. But actually, he is the man who was prophesied to be the king. He's of the royal line. But he's in exile. He's in the north. And he goes to this little pub and meets these four little ones, these halflings, these hobbits. And he's trying to convince them that he is benevolent, that he is on their side. How much so is our king trying to tell us that he's on our side? And this is what Aragorn, trying to convince the hobbits, this is what he says. I must admit that I had hoped you would take me for my own sake. But a hunted man sometimes wearies of distrust and longs for friendship. But here I believe my looks are against me, he said. That's not in the movies, that's in the book. And I remember being on Hirschberger Road, and that quote came up and just arrested me. Went home later, and I texted Pastor Charlie. He and I are always texting back over Grace Church, our Lord of the Rings, letting know each other what happens in the calendar of Middle Earth. It's just pastor therapy, pastor to pastor therapy. But are you weary of distrust? And longing for friendship. See, Aragorn is weary, but I also think Elijah is weary here. We're guarded, we're quickly offended, we throw up um, distances with one another. But here's the character who is the rightful king, who's been in exile, cloaked and mysterious, a ranger of the north. He's a valiant and honorable man, but in the advance of evil and the distrust of ordinary folk, He's wearied. And there will come the return of the king, the third book of this trilogy, but not without sorrow, and not without scorn, and not without battle, and not without loss. Elijah was a valiant and honorable man of God. How would you define what is a man of God or a woman of God? In these just short chapters of these past weeks, this is what Elijah has shown us to be, the, the character, the, the quality of a man of God. Elijah declared the word of the Lord. He was a guy from the country in Gilead, yet with the power of the Lord upon him, he went from the, the boondocks, one person says, and went to the big city of Samaria and declared to the evil king that it's not going to rain because of the sin in this land. Punishment for idolatry. No rain would be in this land. So he declared the word of the Lord. He himself trusted the providence of the Lord. The power of God. He went by the, the brook and was fed by ravens. When the brook dried up, he was sent to a widow, to a Gentile land. By the power of God, the, the oil of flour, the oil of oil, the, the jar of oil and the, and the flour did not run out. And when her son died, he trusted the providence and power of God to raise him from the dead. Elijah had faith for resurrection. Elijah was zealous for the glory of God. Ahab called him the troublemaker. He said, you're the troublemaker. You're the one. It's your sin that's causing this. He called the people to quit drifting between different opinions. Who are you to choose this day? And he offered the proper, proper sacrifice at the proper altar to the true God. He mocked false prophets and put them to death. 
Elijah was a man of prayer. James 5, he was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it may not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. When that young boy died, the widow's only son, Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come to him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he was revived. The contest of Carmel, after the false prophets had flailed and thrashed about in their religious ritual for hours, he prayed. Simple prayer, short prayer. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you've turned their hearts back. And then he prayed again. The heavens gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. This is a great man of God. And we see great women of God also across the scriptures. But even in just these short chapters, what defines a man of God? Boldness with God's word trust in God's ways, zeal for God's glory, and prayer by God's will. A man or a woman of God is all about God. Knowing God, loving God, trusting God, glorifying God, praying to God. All things to Him and love. Who has been the men and women of God in your life? And have you been such to others and witnessed to God's glory? Elijah is a great man of God. And he's been on the mountain and he's seen the glory of God. Last week he saw the fire of the Lord fall and consume the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and looked at the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What a day in the history of Israel to see the glory of God fall with such power. And centuries later, centuries later, Elijah on another mountain seeing the glory of God. Matthew 17, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. What a day in the life of Jesus to be transfigured and to have the glory of God shining from him even before this small group of disciples. But as he talks to two saints of old, Moses and Elijah, Moses who's representative of the law and Elijah who's representative of the prophets. And Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them because they were all pointing to him. We're just like Peter. We want to stay here. We want to stay on this mountain. Let's make some tents, Jesus. We want to stay on our mountaintop experiences of spiritual glory. 
But life is coming at us fast. And evil is in hot pursuit. Look at verse, the first couple verses of chapter 19. Ahab, who is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, told his wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done. He killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. And so she makes a vow to her gods that she is going to murder him. Ahab is married to Jezebel. She's a domineering woman from not God's people, but a a foreign woman who didn't incorporate herself in and and submit herself to Yahweh, brought brought foreign gods in politics that they would be worshipped among God's people. Other scripture, in other scriptures, women are, are esteemed for their faith and virtue, for Deborah and Ruth and Esther and Mary. But Jezebel is the embodiment of evil. This spirit, this spirit behind her, this idolatry, sexual immorality, a radical feminism, a silencing of the prophetic among God's people. And so Jesus even uses this name when he writes to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, not her specifically, but what she represented even in that day, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food, sacrifice to idols. In the contest on Carmel, Baal was powerless. The Lord God was all-powerful. And did Ahab and Jezebel repent? Did they come and submit themselves to the Lord God of Israel? No. Instead, it only hardened their hearts. They get more angry. Do miracles cause faith? Though Jesus had done many signs before them, they still don't believe him. John 12. John 10, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Miracles do not have the power to soften a hardened heart. They do not have the power to open a blind eye. We are saved by God's grace alone. We're not saved by seeing miraculous something before us. We are saved by faith in Christ Jesus, by the grace of God. And this faith to us is itself a gift. This faith that we actually can believe upon Christ is the miracle. Who are we that we would ever believe this? We're dead in our sins. Just because we see something miraculous, you see the sunrise every day. We see the heavens declare the glory of God. But revival is not breaking out across this earth. The miracle we need is the miracle of a new heart. And it's the gift of faith. Jezebel does not have this faith under repentance under the Lord. She vows to slaughter Elijah. Verse 3. He was afraid. And ran for his life. Came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Elijah is a great man of God, and his great faith right now is chased out by sudden fear. If you're running for your life, you can run a long ways. 
And at least in my study here, Elijah ran somewhere between 90 and 120 miles. All the way to Beersheba. And then in verse 4, he's going to go another day's journey into the wilderness. He's trying to outrun the evil. Trying to get outside the kingdom of Jezebel. Evil is in hot pursuit. What does God's word say about when evil is after us and upon us? Fear not. Stand firm. Resist the devil. Fight the good fight of faith. But Elijah is a hunted man. He wearies of distrust. So he runs for his life. Are we running from anything today? Verse 4. He went into the wilderness, came, sat under a broom tree. I've already told you he's a great man of God because he's a man of prayer. He's still praying, but what is he praying now? It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. He's exasperated. He's despairing. And he finally just says, Lord, just take my life. Lord, you hold all my days. Can you just shorten them? Let it be this. So men and women of God should never kill themselves, but they often do pray that God would shorten their days. Moses asked God to put him to death in Numbers 11. Job wished that he had never been born, Job 10. Jeremiah cursed the day of his birth, chapter 20. Jonah asked God to take away his life because it was better for him to die than to live. God is the Lord of life who gives us life and holds our life, numbers our days. But sometimes we just pray for it to hasten. I have a question. Does this rattle you to see a despairing saint? Is this unnerving to have walked with Elijah for these, these first couple chapters and now see him despairing of life? Do you believe that if you're going to be a Christian that exists from sorrow and suffering, disappointment, even persecution? Have you wrongly believed that being a Christian is going to grant you perpetual and permanent happiness? If that's what we believe, then this, this, these verses are going to rattle your faith. And let that rattling come because that's a false gospel. It's not the way of Christ. But perhaps this is not how you feel. Perhaps you see Elijah's despair and it resonates with your life experience. You've kind of found your broom tree at different points and sat under and despaired. And so we like Elijah here because misery loves company. Well, if this is, can be the man of God, this, this can be me. And perhaps you've experienced or are experiencing a spiritual depression. As I go into this, I want to be very clear. I, I am not going to try to speak into the realm of psychology. I'm not going to speak into the realm of biochemistry. I'm going to speak into the realm of spiritual depression. There's so much to consider here, and there's going to be things that will maybe be moving parts within those, those fields. But I'm just a guy with the Bible, and um, 
But I see saints who have, are spiritually depressed and they even hear Elijah. Why is he depressed spiritually? What are the causes that we even just see in these, these verses as we even put it in context of these chapters? He has physical and emotional fatigue. He has someone threatening his life and he's ran for his life over a great distance. And it's just this total physical exhaustion and then emotional exhaustion can be one of the causes of spiritual depression. He's relationally isolated. For at least three, three and a half years, he's not had the community of God's people in worship. He's had relationships. He's had a servant that we're going to drop off in verse 4. He was at the widow's home for a little bit, but not the wider community of God's people. He's going to think he's the only one, too, until, Christ, until next week when Christian takes you, and God's going to remind him that he's not. There's many others. But in this day of distancing, we're no longer distancing, but isolating and becoming depressed. Let's watch our suicide rates, friends. Spiritual opposition. There's unseen demonic forces that I know are arrayed against Elijah. It's even personified by Jezebel, the evil queen, pursuing him. The highs and lows of life. <sighs> Chapter 18 is like, thrilling victory. I mean, fire from heaven after your prayer. And then you have an adrenaline rush to run 90 to 100 miles. You crash. Such a high, high, and now we're just in such a low, low. Dashed expectations. Wouldn't you have thought that that display on Mount Carmel would have caused revival? But it didn't. Not as he has hoped, as he hoped or expected. Perhaps he's in this depression because of guilt now that he's feeling. I didn't confront evil. I fled. I didn't fight for God's glory. I'm fighting for myself for survival. And so there can now start a cycle of guilt. Maybe this would be odd to say, there may be pride in there. I'm no better than my father's. Did you think you were going to be? Did you think you were better? Elijah is now despairing of life and experiencing spiritual depression under the broom tree. Fatigue, isolation, opposition, high highs followed by crashing lows, dashed expectations. Guilt, pride, I don't, I'm not going to psychoanalyze them. I only have what God's Word tells me. But these are things that we can see in the text and even relate to life that we've lived. Have you ever had such a season of spiritual depression? Are you under a broom tree now? Is life not going as you thought it would be? Are you just totally exhausted and fatigued from the daily grind? Are you isolated from others, feeling like God is distant? 
I want to draw a distinction here. There's a distinction here between spiritual depression and self-absorption. Because when all these things overwhelm us, a person who is spiritually depressed is going to feel like they keep losing themselves in the suffering of their circumstances. To the point that he just, I don't even have life. Just take it. But there is something different here. We've got to watch a self-absorption. Sometimes the, the suffering of life comes in the circumstances, and some, some of us can find our identity in our suffering. So we will self-absorb our suffering and define ourselves by it. And so misery loves company, and misery loves affirmation, and misery loves social media. Elijah is not self-absorbed. He is spiritually depressed. So these are the causes, but is there a cure? I mean, there's practical wisdom here. I mean, if you just have strength enough to do it. I mean, I can, let me share a few things. I don't think it would have been heard by Elijah. You can ref, if you have enough strength within you just to, to, as you're in that low, low, just to pull out and think about life, What's been happening in life? What are the circumstances? What have been the changes? What are your feelings? And then how are those kind of just converging into a, a depression? See so if you can think about, just have an honest assessment. What's happening in life? Where are you? There may just be a need to be a more devoted time of prayer, devoted time in God's word. I mean, if you're just totally exhausted, quit racing. Rest. Just good, common grace. Gifts that God gives. Rest. If you feel isolated, fellowship. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. They need exercise. They need good nutrition. Recreation. These are good, common grace gifts. These are good things to do. It doesn't always heal the soul, but it does help us feel get our feet underneath of us again. It's good for us to reflect upon our salvation in Christ Jesus. Have you thought of that? Who you were before Christ, who you would be apart from Christ. To think upon your salvation, then confess your sin again anew. Celebrate God's grace and count blessings. Count blessings. And continue in faith. That's practical wisdom. I don't think Elijah could have heard that. One of my favorite preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. I got a long quote. It's fine. He says it better than I can. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in the matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the troubles of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. 
But this is the psalmist's treatment in Psalm 42, which we did in Call to Worship. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, the psalmist starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? He asked. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end all this great note, defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say to this man, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I couldn't have said it better than that. You got to start talking to yourself. Quit listening to yourself. You got conversations all the time. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have the Word of God before us. And Elijah's underneath a broom tree and he seems beyond this. Verse 5, he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But do you see what happens? In his despairing of life, what does God not give the prophet? He doesn't scold him. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't, in this moment, admonish him. He doesn't abandon him. But in our lowest lows, as we've kind of felt those and experienced this in this fallen world, we have been scorned, we have been shamed, we have been admonished, and we have been abandoned. And there is a time of rebuke, and there is a time of correction, there is a time of admonishment, especially under self-absorption, but not during spiritual depression. This is what the Lord gives to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In this depression of soul, what does God give Elijah? Don't make it too hard. Sleep. He lets him sleep. What a curious science. The science of sleep. There was a guy in our high school who graduated a year before me who became a sleep scientist through UVA. You know, travels with like professional, professional sports teams, like trying to figure out their, their sleep schedules, going to different time zones and stuff. I'm like, how do you get that gig? Like, How long do you sleep a day? They say eight hours. At least six? Come on. At least six? 
six to eight hours a day. You should be. But that's the day. Now put that into your lifetime. That's a, a fourth or a third of your life. You're, sit, you're sleeping. Why would God make us in his image and then the very life he gives us, a fourth of it or a third of it, we spend sleeping? Seems very ineffective to me. Not very productive. But sleep is a picture of our dependence upon the Lord. Why are you so tempted to stay up late and rise early in anxious toil, friends? Because we have a God complex. The world needs us. If we sleep, then we won't be able to keep it all together. But we cannot go nonstop. We cannot hold it all together even in our waking hours. He gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 127. Who can hold it all together? Who can go nonstop? The Lord, behold, he who keeps Israel with neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121. The Lord is in here in control. To his despairing prophet, with evil in hot pursuit, he lets him sleep because the Lord is still in control. What else does he give Elijah? He gives him presence. What happens? To the sleeping prophet, he gets touched literally by an angel. Some of you are old enough to remember the show Touched by an Angel back in the 90s. That one, just get that one out of the way. He was literally touched by an angel. The ministry of presence, just being there. No big model, diatribe, just. Hey, rise and eat. Just touch. Just touch means much more than you realize. Let's be wise. Let's not lose it in this season, though. And he shares the goodness of God with presence. God is always with us, never leaving or forsaking us. The angel of the Lord is there with him, touching. What else does he give him? This provision, don't make it overly complicated. Don't over-spiritualize this. During the drought, he needed food. The ravens brought the meat. He went to the widow's house. There's oil and flour. Just And here, he woke up to a cake. Just hot stones with a cake and a jar of water. Went back to bed, woke up to another cake. God knows and gives what we need because he's a good father. And God can always send an angel. But more commonly, he's going to send his people. How can the physical presence and tangible provision of Christ be known today? Through his body, the church. So some of you are like, Derek, I'm not under a broom tree. Life's actually pretty good. But if you keep preaching like this, I'm going to get depressed. Some of you are not there. And you're actually on a high, your mountaintop, it's glory. You got a new granddaughter born, you're like, ah. I'm... Maybe what you need to see in this passage is not Elijah. You need to kind of tuck that one back for a future day. But you need to see the angel. 
and how God sent some, someone there to be there for someone in great need. And so perhaps we are the sent ones. We are the sent ones, and we're to be there for those who are in need. And in our dark seasons, in our deep valleys of the soul, when evil's in hot pursuit, the Lord God is with us, protecting, providing for us, loving and leading us. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food, of the food 40 days and 40 nights to horror of the mountain of God. Oh my goodness, there's, I could, there's so many, like I could draw a chart between Moses and Elijah and all the parallels, and then you put Christ there, and there's like so many parallels to Mount Horeb he's going to into next week. Arise and go. Don't wallow in self. Don't let this become a self-absorption. Know that this is grace and spiritual depression. No, arise and go in the strength that the Lord supplies. Elijah is a great man of God who's here under a broom tree. And, and this fear is a sin. It's, it's a doubting of God. It's, it's a despairing of it's sinful, but what's going to call him back to the field? It's, it's the loving kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance, that bring, awakens again our faith. Centuries later, there's another man who came among the trees. The Savior, the God-man, here among the trees. Do you remember the time that he was among the trees and was distraught of soul? In that garden, a hunted man sometimes wearies of distrust and longs for friendship. And this mysterious one, this cloaked one, who's come to save and fight for it, and yet he can't have even three friends pray with him. He's a hunted man, they're coming. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, as he says this among the trees. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There among the trees, just despairing of soul, but surrendering himself to the father's perfect will. He would be led from those trees and then would be hung on a tree. He'd be mocked by onlookers. He'd be forsaken by God. This man, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds we have been healed. God knows what we need for everyday living, for this life that he's given us. But what do we need most? His salvation unto him. And so what does he send for sinful souls? Not just an angel to touch us or to give us food and drink. He sent his beloved son to share in our flesh, to share in our temptations, and yet not sin. And at the appointed time, in a way that we never saw happening, the one who is the rightful king, he comes and takes our place in judgment before God. 
dies the death we deserve for our sin, forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is finished. It is finished there on that tree. Who is this prophet of prophets who came with the word of God? Who is this Savior of sinners who died in our place? Who is this Lord of all who resurrected in the victory over death? You know, this is Jesus. There's no more precious name than this, than the name of Jesus. And do you believe upon him for salvation this day? I don't know where you're coming into this text. But do know that in the dark seasons and in the deep valleys of the soul, when it feels like evil is in hot pursuit, Jesus promises us to protect us and to provide for us, to never leave us nor forsake us, to love us and to lead us. And he calls us to himself. Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Elijah found rest for his souls. The journey's not done, even though he thought he was ready to quit. God not only sustained him, but strengthened him. How are you knowing this today in faith after Christ? Let's pray.